You're listening to Mastering Mind and Body, a chat about being uber-human. Welcome to this new podcast series here in Singapore. My name is Marcus Knirk. Let's kick it off. I'm here today with Adrian Lee from Jakarta. Hey, good morning, Adrian. Good morning. How are you doing? Doing very well, thanks, Marcus. Thanks for having me. Before we dug into many interesting topics on how you master your mind and body, I want to cover one important one first, which is you are a wine enthusiast. And in fact, you're heading the Jakarta chapter of International Wine and Food Society. That's incredible. I love wine. So what kind of wines do you like the most? I'd like to say I, I like the wines that I can't afford the most. But uh, <laughs> you know, wine, uh, you know, my wife and I, co-founded the IWFS or International Wine and Food Society chapter for Jakarta. Uh, we don't run it right now. We've passed it on to other wine enthusiasts who uh, run the chapter. Um, we see wine as, uh, we love wine because we love the way it tastes and the way it goes uh, with food as well. But um, even from a, just from a more academic or appreciation standpoint, wine is so complex and um, you know, we started learning more about wine, understanding everything from how it's made to how it tastes and, uh, you know, how you distinguish amongst the more subtle parts of different types of wine. Um, it really became, you know, something more of an enjoyment to even a hobby and a, and a fascination um, of wine. So, you know, the wines that we uh, like most uh, do tend to be uh, old world wines. Currently, you know, so we do enjoy a good glass of Bordeaux or Burgundy. Uh, though currently we're drinking, I'd say, more Italian wines of late. Uh, so some of the Tuscan wines uh, have become uh, favorites of ours. Very nice. This seems to be for another topic, another top uh, podcast. I'm very curious to hear about the wine society in uh, Indonesia, actually. Uh, but before we go there, I think it's definitely worth digging a bit more into your life um, and trying to understand on who you are and what you do. Would you mind maybe giving a brief overview on why you are an uber-human living in Indonesia? Right. Thanks so much uh, for that opportunity. So I'm an entrepreneur turned venture investor and you know, presently I'm a uh, founder and managing partner of Convergence Ventures based uh, in Indonesia. So my path to be a venture investor you know, really started many years ago. I started my career as an investment banker with JP Morgan uh, before turning to doing my MBA at Stanford. I'd always been fascinated about uh, technology and particular helping growing early stage companies. And so when I applied to Stanford, one of the uh, key reasons and one of the things I really wanted to do after graduating uh, was to be a backer of uh, early stage companies and in particular technology because of the speed uh, of which these companies could grow and the innovative ways they could use technology to build businesses. So after I graduated from Stanford, I started my first company uh, in China. It was in one of the very first online education companies where we connected work-at-home teachers based in the U.S. to students learning English in China. We built this company back in 2006. That company, we'd raised a couple rounds of financing, and we successfully sold that company to a U.S. business in 2010. But all the while, I think while we were trailblazing or pioneering in the space, it really was a bit too early for online education of that nature to hit the main stage. So after that, I ended up working with Rocket Internet for a couple of years. I built a company first in China and then later moved to Indonesia with Rocket, uh, building a company in Indonesia. Now, moving to, to Indonesia was an opportunity that I 
thought was highly compelling, especially given that I worked, lived and built technology companies in China for the previous six years. What I saw was this opportunity to leverage all that experience and knowledge that I gained in China to uh, building businesses and ultimately investing and supporting entrepreneurs in Indonesia and Southeast Asia as the whole region uh, started to go through the same effects of technology disruption as China had done uh, in the past. And so that ultimately led me to starting Convergence Ventures in 2014 and launching our first fund in 2015, which is what I do to date with my partner, Donald Lahaja. Nice. And I think anyone that likes to learn more about your journey, recommend to listen to the Asia Tech Podcast, which uh, was published a few days ago, in fact, and you very nicely uh, describe your, your career from all the way from UK, I believe, to China, to Southeast Asia. That's, I think, a very good podcast from Eric uh, that he recorded a few weeks ago. But this podcast is less about that for now. I think before going to your entire piece on investing and what you do with convergence in Indonesia, I'd like to dig deeper into how you master mind and body and, and how you then combine that into your professional life as well. So if I would now ask your two little cute kids to start with, what and how would they describe you probably in, in one or two sentences? In one or two sentences, you know, I, I think maybe even one word, uh, they might uh, uh, describe me as Iron Man, partly because they have come to uh, know that I spend a lot of time training for triathlons, in particular Iron Man, and they have Iron Man t-shirts, but also their favorite superhero uh, right now is Iron Man, the one in metallic robotic suit. So... I think that would be the word that they would use to describe me. Nice. So I don't, I don't hope you fly away all the time, um, but you, you do. do. <laughs> Unfortunately, I spend a lot of time away. This might be the other reason why they, <laughs> they uh, call me Iron But you actually do a lot of Ironmans. That's, I think, one of your, one of your passions, right? Absolutely. Uh, I've, I've always been a fan of endurance sports. I started with marathons. Uh, I've done six marathons so far. I started uh, triathlon when I was at business school uh, in Stanford in 2005. And so it's been over 10 years that I've been doing triathlons and, and uh, most recently uh, in the past five years, more Ironman triathlons, both the 70.3 distance and a full Ironman. I've uh, managed to continue my learning in this as well through recently being certified as an Ironman coach. And so I have a backup career should I ever need to fall back to uh, coaching for Ironman. Uh, but I've, through the training and through the experience in Ironman, slowly been able to, I suppose, uh, improve my results and uh, currently uh, what they call a all-world athlete, which means um, I'm ranked in the top 10% of my age group. Congrats. That's nice. So if the tech bubble would burst, you can just become a coach and uh, coach all the entrepreneurs who, who failed and get onto the Ironman track. When everyone hits their midlife crisis. <laughs> Good point, because there is some research that the average marathon runner is, I think, 45 years old, similar for the Ironman athlete. You started fairly early. Um, how come you done it when you were in university? That's a, that's a great question. I stumbled upon Ironman initially because I was watching CNBC's World Championship uh, Ironman competition, the one that gets held annually in Kona. When I watched the competition, part of the show is uh, focused on the pros and the athletes who are competing 
to be the you know to, to be the winners of those of that race. But the other part of the show was focused on ordinary people, and in many cases, people who have their lives uh, compromised in some shape or form, emotionally, physically, mentally, and have taken to Iron Man as a way to get themselves back on track. In this particular one, I had seen the story of a, a rather old lady, I believe probably in her 70s, who had taken to doing an Ironman race uh, in memory of her late husband. And when I saw just the enormity of the task that she did and the uh, persistence that she demonstrated in completing that race, you know, it really did open up my eyes to how far humans can go if they just apply uh, their mental attitude, hard work and grit towards completing something. And so that, I suppose, had planted the seed in my mind uh, to do an Ironman sometime in the future. If you know, These people who I'm seeing on TV can do it. Not the pros, the ordinary people can do an Ironman. Surely even I could do an Ironman at some stage. And then uh, what actually triggered me signing up for an actual race was when I was at Stanford in my MBA, we had a classmate who was a, a top 10 amateur Ironman athlete. And he said, again, he reinforced the idea that this is very possible as long as you put the time in. So my flatmate and I both signed up uh, to do an Ironman that, uh, that, that year in 2006. The grit part is, seems to be quite a theme in your life. You mentioned it quite often. Where is it coming from in your case? How, how come the grit in, and how come the drive then behind that? So I think part of this came from role modeling from my parents. Uh, both my parents uh, work extremely hard. They, you know, my father is a, a doctor. He went through the, the public service system in the UK, the NHS system, uh, training as a doctor, and then later in Hong Kong. And he's really achieved uh, a lot in his career as a doctor. But uh, as you know, becoming a medical doctor is extremely hard work. Um, and you really do dedicate your life to the patients that you serve uh, and to the, uh, to the, to the industry. Uh, my mother you know, after she's, uh, we, I have two brothers, so she has three kids. And you know, after having us, you know, she went back to the workforce quite late. And she spent 25 plus years building a career, even though starting late, in the headhunting industry, where she's a very well-respected headhunter now. So I think their hard work had rubbed off uh, in um, all of us, not just myself, my two brothers as well, who also do Ironman. I think even at, uh, at an early age, uh, I began to value the value hard work and uh, understanding that uh, it would take a long time to reap the benefits of that hard work and to goals that we aim for. Uh, one of the earliest was when I, uh, none of my family, you know, my, my parents and you know, their, their siblings included, ever went to any famous schools. And when I started boarding school at the age of 10 in the UK, I remember very clearly an instance where I uh, had been told by my tutor about students who'd gone to famous schools like Oxford and Cambridge and put in my mind that this was somewhere that I'd want to go to one day as well. Uh, his response, you know, given that I didn't come from any particular strong academic background, was that you know, the likelihood is you probably won't go there because it's extremely tough to get into. And so that set me on a course uh, on the ensuing eight years that I would study academically extremely hard to bring myself up to a point in which I could have a shot at 
uh, going to one of these schools. And, you know, I uh, worked so hard at prep school, the age of 10, 11, 12, that my tutors actually were concerned in my school report to my parents saying that you're, there's something wrong with your child. He's working too hard. He's not socializing. He's not hanging out with people. But, you know, stage by stage through that hard work, I ultimately managed to get the types of grades that uh, would allow me to apply and I ultimately got a, uh, was accepted into, into Cambridge to study economics. From, you know, from that uh, early example, I think the hard work that I learned from my parents and then applying that myself to achieving something that I think uh, at the time seemed like an impossible goal has uh, uh, given me the sufficient evidence and understanding that that's something that I can continue to apply in other areas of my life. Yeah, interesting. So, I, I, I mean, I guess you had really good role models then that, that where your parents were there to, to show you what to do and then you followed the track. But also you are very used to pushing the boundaries. You're very, push, very used to uh, putting yourself goals and achieving them or even overachieving them. Do you feel satisfaction doing that? How do you, how do you celebrate your achievements? That's a, that's a great question, Marcus. I, I find actual satisfaction, a lot of satisfaction in the journey of pushing myself or putting myself in a area that I feel uncomfortable in. I think that's how, uh, how one can learn the most uh, through uh, setting up high bars and aiming for those bars. Uh, how do I celebrate that success? I think I get a lot of enjoyment from that, uh, from, from the uh, journey of, of getting there itself, uh, depending on uh, what we are. Uh, what I'm aiming for. A lot of a lot of what I set as goals for myself is not a one-man show at all. It's as a result of uh, team members, family members, other constituents, and people who have helped along the way. And you know, upon achieving any of one of those results that's worth celebrating, uh, the best thing is to be able to celebrate with those people that are all part of the journey um, in what we're aiming for. You know, when I think about my, for example, that. The Ironman the, that I completed in 2013, you know, I celebrated uh, with my family, with my parents, brothers, uh, with my good friend who completed the Ironman journey with me. Um, it really was uh, a great moment uh, for us to celebrate upon finishing that race. Uh, I can very much imagine that one. <laughs> with with these Ironmans, particularly, let's kind of fo focus on them a bit more. What has been then the toughest? challenge there mentally and also physically it's taken me a long journey it took me a long journey to get to actually finishing my first ironman uh, i mentioned that i'd signed up for an ironman in 2005 and trained all of 2000 most of 2006 during my second year as an mba at stanford for that race unfortunately i after nine months of training crashed my bike into a tree and broke my wrist which uh, promptly put me out of doing that particular race, which was Ironman UK, uh, just uh, four months before, uh, sorry, four weeks before I was meant to actually compete in that race. Um, it would then be uh, many years later that uh, I had then had the time to turn my attention back to training. Um, that was in 2009. And I had my second uh, setback because I had trained again for a race, but only later to find out uh, just before the race that the race was cancelled because of some issues with the course. Uh, again, realities of uh, building a startup took me away from being able to compete in a second race despite doing the training. Uh, and it was only really on that genuine third attempt to do a full Ironman 
uh, in 2013 uh, did I actually manage to complete both the training and also complete a race. And so when you talk about some of the mental and physical challenges, uh, it is important to understand, you know, an Ironman, it really is not something that can be rushed. Uh, it takes a lot of time, both in mental preparation, also physical preparation. Uh, there's, you know, they're saying within Ironman circles that training for an Ironman is like turning a, if you could, a polystyrene cup inside out, bending it. Uh, it's If you pull it too fast, the thing is going to shatter. You know, that can happen uh, with training for an Ironman, both uh, physically and mentally, because as you train for a full Ironman, you ultimately ramp up to a good 13, 14, 15 hours of training in a week. Um, and as, if you're, you're trying to do that on top of a full-time profession and maintain some semblance of family or even social life, that can be very tiring uh, indeed. Uh, it's, it's something that you need to work, it's something you need to work up to. Uh, it's something that you uh, cannot, cannot rush. You know, I've found more and more so, as, especially as I've completed the Ironman coach training now, uh, there's a lot of science and, and, and quality that goes into that training. It's not just the quantity. Uh, the rest periods that one takes is just as important as the exercise periods that one takes. Yeah, I hear you. Would you then say that you wrap around your Ironman training around your life or other way around? Would you wrap around your life around the Ironman training? What's, how do you prioritize? Again, a great question. So right now, uh, I would say that uh, I mostly focus on these uh, 70.3 distances, which are technically half Ironman distances. You know, I've managed to find a good cadence for the amount of which uh, I would ex I, I do exercise and train for these half Ironman. Uh, I do uh, one to two races a year. I find I need about 10 weeks to prepare for a race. Uh, you know, exercise is anyway a large part of my life. So uh, and something I find very important and lead a lot in kind of health in body and mind and therefore a spirit. I've managed to find a good balance where uh, I'm training right now uh, during weekdays, somewhere between 45 minutes to 60 minutes, and then longer periods on the weekends, uh, two to three hours. Uh, and that fits very nicely with you know all the work commitments and family commitments that I have. What I would say is that should I, when I do attempt uh, a second full Ironman, uh, I would uh, likely have to put a lot of focus around that training because it does become uh, take a substantial amount of time to train for the full Ironman. No, that's, I can imagine that's a different level than again in itself. So it's about physical exercise, it's about training, it's about also resting, um, and then also doing, doing the mindfulness part around it. But adding to this, it's also all about nutrition. And not just you have probably focus on nutrition, but you even are going a step further, you are also doing fasting, which is, I think, something that is quite interesting. And I would love to learn more about this as well. And what's your journey on the fasting side? Yes, thanks. I, I think uh, fasting, especially when it comes to training, is probably a little controversial, uh, especially my standpoint uh, on fasting and how it pertains to training. Uh, I will qualify what I say by I'm taking cues from books that I've read and also from how my own body reacts, my own body's results from fasting and training. Uh, but I am not a qualified nutritionist uh, or doctor to, to talk on these things. I started my journey on fasting uh, four years ago uh, through reading a book called Eat, Stop, Eat uh, by Brad Pylon. A lot of what the book said about how we evolved as human beings, about how traditions like fasting are baked into many religions, and even how some of the earliest uh, medical doctors 
like Hippocrates, had talked about fasting as a natural remedy. And in contrast to the way that we are marketed food and diets and how we eat these days, is in such it's a, there's such a difference compared to how even we used to eat a hundred years ago. Uh, it made a lot of sense to me to to start experimenting with fasting. So four years ago, I started fasting by doing what's known as 24-hour water fasts once a week, uh, where I would go from dinner to dinner uh, without eating anything in between and just simply drinking water or maybe the odd no-calorie drink like a black coffee. You know, After a year of that, um, I, I felt that fasting, A, was something that was certainly not harming my body, B, even more importantly, helping me better understand for myself, what my body needed in terms of food, especially understanding sometimes hunger for me came from feeling like I should eat when I didn't really need to eat or eating out of uh, habit versus actually eating out of necessity. It really provided me better perspective in terms of my relationship with food. And so from two years ago, I decided to step it up and I started to fast twice a week. And that's where I think it really had it a uh, an added impact to both my physique and then also uh, the mental benefits that I accrued from fasting. From a couple of years ago, you know, I uh, lost uh, a bit of weight. Uh, I, I went from about uh, high 60, 67, 68 kilograms to uh, close to 60, uh, 60 kilograms, 60 to 61 kilograms. What's what's your height? Just just quickly, because you're not you're not, not too tall. Oh yeah, so I'm I'm one I'm one six five in height centimeters. But from a BMI perspective, that puts me to about uh, twenty one, which is right which is right kind of bang in, in the middle of uh, what's supposedly the healthy BMI range. And so I lost three inches from my waist, which from thirty three inches to to thirty inches. Um, and my fat percentage went down three, four percent, down to twelve percent. You know, when uh, during this time, I've also been training and doing Ironman races, and I found that it made uh, during this time it made very uh, little difference to my time. Even though I uh, I trained less and I weighed less and I'd uh, incorporated uh, fasting into my regimen. Uh, in fact, I you know started to get more efficient and faster in my races as well. I, I had a lot of benefit from that kind of physical. Uh, physical standpoint but you know as I read more about fasting and some good books around now about fasting and more medical evidence data to support uh, fasting you know, there's there's really more to it than you know losing weight I think you know, people are showing now that fasting uh, is also beneficial in a variety of ways in avoiding and preventing chronic diseases that affect people at older age everything from high cholesterol levels to diabetes to even avoiding mental uh, brain problems like Alzheimer's. You know, fasting has been shown to be a way, regular fasting has been shown to be a way that you can help the body regenerate itself by taking breaks from eating food and processing food and uh, therefore be a very healthy part of uh, how people live. Would you say then your diet has changed in any way? I mean, all of our cheeseburgers or french fries somewhere you mentioned that, that you have been been more aware of your intake which i guess has also an impact on then what you eat naturally yes i think that's that's happened also in a parallel process uh, i'm very careful to now i enjoy food as you as you could probably imagine having done this iwfs 
uh, set up this IWFS chapter here. Uh, certainly, um, if you were to plot me in eat to live or live to eat, you know, I'm on the live to eat uh, camp. I really enjoy my, my, my food. But I do consciously avoid food that uh, is too processed or um, food that I don't think is healthy for my, for, for my body, right? Unless I'm simply eating that food for the enjoyment of eating that, of that, that food. What I do do these days is, uh, compared to previously, I do consume less uh, meat. It uh, doesn't mean I don't eat meat. I do eat meat, but I eat less meat. I try and eat uh, more foods which are in their raw form where possible. Uh, I drink uh, a lot of a lot more water than I used to. Tend to take in nutrition which is much more in its kind of natural natural format. You mentioned also you had you saw some mental benefits. I'm curious um, what what were those? What are those? Uh, especially with with fasting. You know, I think these days you know, we live almost in an on-demand world where if you're you know, if you're living in the city and you know, you're, the, a lot of things are uh, readily available in demand, particularly food. By uh, deliberately, purposefully uh, fasting, I've been able to find that I've gained benefit from a huge amount of gratitude when uh, I fasted for 24 hours and I have that first uh, mouthful of food. And I think that sense of gratitude, which I, uh, you know, which I, which I get from that, translates to other areas of appreciation and uh, understanding, uh, gratitude for what we what we get to have. Uh, in life. And I think that's been beneficial from a mental standpoint. I've also found that through fasting, uh, that I can help my body be more present, and also be more focused, particularly, you know, on the days that I'm fasting, and I'm focusing on uh, the work at hand, uh, and the tasks that I'm doing. So it's all really come hand in hand, the, the fasting, and also this mental, uh, mental focus, and this gratitude. Which is so controversial, as you said at the beginning, because normally we think if you're fasting, we're starving, our, our mind focuses, shifts towards food and anything related to that. Um, but I think after some time, and it probably takes some time to get into it, you, you really get used to the, the lacking of intake and, and we can focus your mind on other things. Uh, so it's actually kind of a, a mindful exercise in itself. Right. Yeah, so I, you know, I, we, I run a small fasting group Uh, with our founders and also some other entrepreneurs in uh, in Southeast Asia, and you know I advocate fasting because you know it's something that I feel that as an entrepreneur uh, it can we can benefit from in a lot of ways, right? Because you know not only does it free up time if you're not eating in two meals of a day, uh, but that time can then be applied towards uh, productive tasks that we. You know, that we we have to do because there's so much going on at any one time. Um, it also helps with that mental focus of what we need to do. And just one last thing on the exercise piece, because you mentioned that also rest and sleep is very important for you. How do you make sure you rest well enough doing all these business trips and Ironman trainings and fasting and whatnot and having a family? <laughs> uh, I do uh, try and make sure I have at least seven hours of sleep every night. I find that's the uh, number that I work best with. Interestingly, in, in fact, there was recently a study released on data from the millions upon millions of data that Fitbit has, and it actually drew correlations between uh, healthy BMIs, uh, healthy heart rate, resting heart rates, and people who are sleeping um, seven hours a night, you know, as compared to sleeping too much, like eight or nine hours, or sleeping too little. 
there's all a lot of big data, but uh, it shows there's some data to support that that's the right number of hours to sleep. Of course, it differs from person to, to, to person. What I found is that having a, having a routine uh, really helps. Uh, I have a routine every day, generally get into bed by 9, 9.30. I avoid taking conference calls or working late tonight because that puts my brain into work mode and affects my sleep. I'd much rather wake up early in the morning. So I do. I wake up at 5 in the morning. I have my uh, morning ritual, which uh, involves a 10-minute meditation, followed by reading for 10 minutes, followed by writing my journal for 10 minutes. Uh, so in 30 minutes, I feel like I've got three big things done in the day uh, before then doing my 45-minute exercise. Uh, and then I can get that all done before my kids wake up and uh, send them off uh, see them off uh, to school and then starting the, the work day. Nice, which is kind of a nice legging now towards what you do during your day and topic that's both close to our hearts, which is investing in technology. Um, how do you then translate that mental and physical exercise and experience and knowledge into then your work life? Uh, I, I find that um, a lot of what I, I've been able to, to do uh, in that routine has helped me focus and prioritize the various things going on uh, in professional life. One of the challenges as a, uh, as a venture capitalist is to juggle the many, many things that go on uh, at once. Everything from the help, supporting the portfolio that we're investing, we're invested in 36 companies right now uh, throughout Southeast Asia, uh, to uh, dealing with new leads for new investments uh, that we're doing to uh, managing our limited partners, our investors in the fund as well, as well as doing general business development for the benefit of the fund and also the benefit of our, of our portfolio companies as well. And so having that routine and applying focus and prioritization from my personal life and applying that to how I work has been uh, something that's been of quite some benefit. Uh, one of the ways that we, you know, that we try and seek to support entrepreneurs is through coaching, particularly as it uh, pertains to uh, growing a business. Uh, both my partner and I have built and operated businesses in the past. And so applying things that we have learned and found to work in the past, but also you know, reading books and understanding things like how OKR methodologies can help with uh, technology companies. The technology companies, internet-enabled uh, companies, are businesses that grow very fast. And uh, as they grow fast, traditional techniques don't necessarily uh, provide the best way for those companies to grow. And so if we can helpfully, if we can be of value by coaching entrepreneurs through this way, then that's one way we can add value as well. So not, not just the money you give, you also give more than that, it seems like. Absolutely. We, 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 we think uh, money is common denominator. It's the very least the venture capital can, uh, capitalists can provide. We can help with many key areas, such as helping them find that key talent that needs to join the company, making that a specific introduction to a decision maker that can make a big difference for how the company does sales or makes a particular partnership. Being able to help with a uh, introduction for investors for the next round of financing, uh, being able to apply a high-level pattern recognition or uh, strategies from the num number of the huge number of companies that we work with and we see to helping any individual company. Um, and last, last but not least, but you know, sitting with the company with their with the entrepreneurs, with the founders on their journey up and down uh, because we've seen that no company achieves success in a straight line. It's a journey that has mm. its highs and its lows. Yes, that's, that's for sure. If I would ask the entrepreneurs in your portfolio, 
what would you like them to say if they would describe the work you do with them? We, you know, our tagline for the fund is to empower our entrepreneurs with experience, network, and capital. And so we very much focus on being able to offer valuable experience across uh, the invested companies that we have done across the investors that we have on board at advisors, all of whom come with a lot of experience. So being able to offer that experience in the form of, of coaching uh, in terms of introductions uh, and, and, and so on is something that we hope to provide to the, to our founders and to the entrepreneurs. And I think if you speak to any of them, you'll find that uh, that is certainly something that we, we, we can offer. We also, as I mentioned, do a lot of introductions for Uh, talent to bring on board those companies to important business partnerships as well, uh, as well as potential investors for follow-on funding. I think that's definitely needed in ASEAN, where there's not yet really a very mature entrepreneurship ecosystem um, like Silicon Valley or others. Uh, and many of the founders are still learning. Yes, and that comes around to kind of what our name stands for, right? With Convergence, it was all about bringing together uh, the right mix of resources um, and working in partnership. Do you see that the entrepreneurs and the founders you invest in, are they mentally and physically uh, on the well-being side? And given your lifestyle, do you promote certain things as well? And is it one of your criteria as well to look into, to invest? It's, uh, we, it's not a criteria um, for us to invest uh, or based off whether you know, that person uh, works out or physical, phys their physical side. But it is something that we that I share with uh, with our with our portfolio founders if they're interested to learn. And you know, some of our founders have taken that on, on board. You know, recently see Linga, who's the CEO and founder of Salesstock. You know, he's uh, been fasting. He's uh, started exercising. Uh, you know, it's very visible in everything that he's done, and uh, you know, he feels healthier and better as a entrepreneur and CEO and as a husband and father through doing all of that. And, um, you know, another recent uh, founder that's taken all this on board is uh, Benson from Urban Hire. You know, he started fasting, he started exercising, and uh, I think he said he lost over 10 or 16 kilos in the last uh, month or so, in a couple of months or so from taking all of this. And uh, again, he feels much more, much stronger and better equipped to run his business through having a healthier Uh, lifestyle as well. That's great. And I do believe that there is really a need to um, encourage founders and entrepreneurs more because, as you said, it's a very long journey. It's not just about the first Series C to Series A round. It takes a bit longer. And I think actually, That's remember, right. you compared the startup life with having an Ironman. Right. Yeah, that was a very interesting comparison. Would you mind maybe quickly touching on this? Because I think it was very good for anyone to, to hear this. Sure. Uh, pleasure to. So, It was a, a loose but I think relevant analogy in that uh, in completing an Ironman triathlon or a triathlon in any sorts, you know, there are three stages. You know, there is a, a triathlon is comprised of a swim, a bike, and a run. To complete the triathlon or to compete effectively against your peers, you have to complete all three uh, and not just one. And there are different strategies for each. And part of the analogy I drew was in the swim, which is uh, a mass start or uh, so often it's a mass start swim in, in triathlons where you could have up to a thousand competitors all jumping into the water at the same time. It's a bit of a mad rush 
Uh, it's like uh, swimming in a, uh, in a washing machine is what some people have uh, described it as. And you can get elbowed in the face and get kicked in the face, you know, people dragging on your feet. And it's easy to get knocked out at that early stage when you're swimming in open water. You know, you're not swimming in a swimming pool with lanes and clear markers. Uh, you know, it's a bit of a struggle. It's a bit of a clamor at, at, at the beginning. Uh, and you know, even if you, if, you, if you come out first, right, it doesn't mean that you're, you're going to win the race. Right. So it's important to uh, get into that uh, first leg um, strong, steady, but not get knocked out at an early at an early stage. Then as you go into the bicycle, which in triathlon is the longest component, many people use uh, in triathletes use that as the opportunity to uh, get the most leg up, to be able to get the uh, longest uh, savings in time as you can, uh, you know, this is the longest part of the race. And the analogy to startup was that that's when you start raising some venture money and you can apply on capital to your growth and you grow faster and you can take on market share and you uh, move faster and faster. And you know, that uh, is similar in triathlon. You've got uh, uh, triathletes who invest a lot into being the fastest on the bike and they make the most uh, time savings and they can come out of the bike uh, number one right after the swim. But even then, that's not the end of the race. Uh, the end is uh, completing the the, the run. And if you think about a full Ironman, that is completing a full 42 kilometer marathon after a 180 kilometer bike. And in Ironman, we've frequently also seen uh, you know, people who've come out with leads of 20 plus minutes on the bike, uh, only to then uh, lose that lead on the run by a you know, competitor who has uh, been more perhaps conservative on the bike. Um, saving strength and energy to make sure that they can continue for the long run on the run. And that analogy to startup is that you know, even if you raise venture capital and you're going really fast and you're taking on market share, ultimately you have to build a business that's built to last and one that will be sustainable and go on for the long run. And that's what I see as the kind of the long run part of building a startup where you mature, not just from venture backed startup, but you know, ultimately to IPO or uh, further down the road, uh, the very best businesses are the ones that then uh, go on to achieve profitability and independence from investors and build really good, sustainable, long-term businesses. I love it. I mean, I can also see so many analogies in comparison to what I do with trail running. Um, but I think, yeah, the different, the three different parts are spot on. VCs are always very proud and talking about their portfolio companies that are doing very well. Um, but I'm also always curious to understand the, the anti-portfolio, the companies that in your case, using your analogy, uh, are now in the marathon stage, but you have not been able to invest in at the bicycle or swimming stage. So we are uh, a Indonesia-focused fund, uh, though we started properly investing in 2015. So we many of the earlier, well, many of the current unicorns, I think, were uh, well on their way when um, you know when we had a fund set up, but one company that we did have an opportunity to look at and potentially invest was one of the uh, horizontal e-commerce companies, Booklap Hub. Uh, we saw that in I think 2015. That company is now allegedly a, uh, a unicorn company and has raised uh, from some very well-respected investors. Uh, at the time, we uh, although we liked what the entrepreneur was doing and the potential of the space. Uh, we decided not to invest because we felt that it was already a very crowded space uh, where there was a Tokopedia that had uh, done very well. There was a rocket-backed 
Lazada, and you know those seem to be already the winners of the horizontal e-commerce space. Uh, and so we decided not to invest. I think what we've learned from that is that you know that uh, in this part of the world, and even if you look in China now, uh, the disrupting companies themselves can be disrupted. And with a big and fast-growing market, there are always uh, opportunities for late entrants to to win the market uh, with strong execution and the right founders and people and team in place. So it's all about the lessons you learn from that. Not necessarily, I think, having thirty-six other companies in portfolio, I'm sure there will be quite a few in there that uh, are going to be superstars. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Yes, that's right. Yeah, perfect. Um, the last few questions I have are on the one hand side on the investment, which is I read somewhere you were saying that you do believe that companies are there for the long run and should be sustainable and should be hence also doing good. So I was wondering a bit about your thesis there. How do you measure? How do you balance the line of doing good versus financial return? As an investor, yes, I think that I don't really think it's a line. I think that it's it's perfectly possible to do good, and in fact, I think it's better to do good and do well versus trying to choose uh, one or the other. Now, I'm not saying that uh, a company is a charity at the same time as being a financial profitable and viable concern. I'm saying that there's the right way of doing business, and many businesses will do well by either doing right. For their consumers or various other constituents uh, in the company, Gojek, for example, does a tremendous job of providing a sustainable living for the many Ojek drivers through their platform. Um, they have also benefited many, you know, many, many vendors. You know, we're investors in uh, companies like you know Salesstock, which I mentioned earlier, that are providing affordable. Uh, female fashionable clothing to many people across Indonesia, even outside of Java, who otherwise would not have access to this type of clothing. We're invested in Mokapos, which is uh, the most widely used point of sale system for many small medium enterprises, particularly uh, retailers, small uh, retailers and vendors who can't afford other other systems. So, you know, I think that there is not a it's not really an either or. I think that there is many of the best businesses uh, do an incredible amount of good for uh, society and uh, their various stakeholders with the business. I very much agree on this. Well, I mean, with that and all the things you've done um, and you're doing and being on your journey, what's next for you? What What are the next achievements you you have on mind? So, you know, I think so for uh, prof- specifically on my my professional life. Uh, you know, venture venture capital is a very long term career, and it's it's one that I can see myself doing you know for many 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 years. And certainly, every fund that we raise, we're committing uh, to a ten year fund horizon. So I hope that everything that uh, we're doing through backing entrepreneurs and what we're learning every day, we can uh, improve and how we spot the right entrepreneurs and also continue to support and back the founders that we've uh, invested in. Uh, so far, so that's an ongoing, ongoing journey, and you know we look to forward to be raising uh, follow-on funds and managing uh, additional capital in order to empower more entrepreneurs uh, in you know, the entire Indonesia and Southeast Asia ecosystem. On my Ironman endeavors, actually, my long-time goal would one day be to race the uh, Kona Ironman World Championships. Uh, which is the birthplace of Ironman, and it's one of the toughest, toughest races uh, to get into. But my trick will be not that I'm 
you know, planning to qualify for that race, but I want to be able to do that race with my family, uh, my two kids and my wife, if that's what she would want to do. But I have two young boys and they're currently three and five, maybe in about 20 years time when I'm uh, in my, uh, perhaps when I'm in my 60s, uh, I will be fit enough and agile enough to race with my kids and complete the Kona Ironman with them. Well, they do have an Ironman coach at that, so that's certainly beneficial. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I mean, what's the best way to get in touch with you, either to train with you or to get ideas and uh, thoughts on the Indonesian ecosystem? Sure. I'm, I'm very happy to get in touch with anyone who's interested in uh, entrepreneurship, uh, technology ventures, Ironman triathlon, or even fasting, uh, for example. I'm reachable at my email, which is Adrian at convergencevc.com. Uh, you can easily find me as well on uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram uh, also. The usual channels. <laughs> the usual channels, that's right. Great, Adrian. Thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you. And uh, all the best with your next endeavors. Thank you, Marcus. Thanks for watching. Great. That's it. I'm looking forward to hearing your feedback on this. Please connect and reach out. You can find the podcast on the website called uberhuman.me, Facebook, it's uberhuman.me, on Twitter, uberhuman underscore me, Instagram, uberhuman.me, and LinkedIn, Mastermind and Body. And obviously, email address we also have, which is hi.uberhuman at gmail.com. Please switch out, subscribe to the channel as well, share with your friends, and looking forward to hearing more from you. Thank you.